we are going to read Revelation 21, starting at verse 9, and then all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, because that is a single section. It is a vision of the Apostle John. We're not going to be able to deal with all of it this morning. The goal is going to be to look over this passage in two weeks, but we will read it all. So Revelation 21, starting at verse 9, and there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, come hither and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and the gates and at the gates, Twelve angels and the names written thereon, which were the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof and 140 and four cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonus, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which were saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they that which are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant sh- and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and no need of and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. When Squire Parsons wrote the song Beulah Land, he intended it to describe it as a place that is essentially synonymous with heaven. The word Beulah actually means married, and it comes from Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, which reads, You shall be no more termed forsaken, neither shall your land be any more termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, that is, my delight is in her, and your land Beulah, or married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the groom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Right? This promise to the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, no more forsaken, no more desolate, but instead a day coming when God's people will be known with clarity as his delight, and they will dwell in a land called Beulah are married because they will be in perfect unity with God. The reason why that promise of Beulah land, that married land, a place of unity and delight, the reason it came as a promise in Isaiah 62 was that the people of God were at that time in exile. Babylon had come and taken them and carried them away from the land of promise. They found themselves as strangers and foreigners in a land that was not their home with with nothing but the promise that someday they would be delivered to a place of unity with the Lord God. They could have read about that promise to other strangers and exiles like in Exodus when the Hebrews were locked away in the land of Egypt. They also looked forward to this time of deliverance and restoration and, and the blessing of a, of a promised place. The text here in Revelation 21 and 22 should serve to instill us with that same kind of hope. As a child of God, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you are out of place in this world. You are a stranger in a strange land. You are a pilgrim looking forward to the city whose foundation and architect and builder is God himself. You are a subject of the king of kings, but you are living as a foreigner in a country that is not your own, that is actually in rebellion against him. As Paul told the the Philippians in his letter to that church, you have to remember that your citizenship is in heaven and you are eagerly awaiting the coming of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of that 
that we can sing songs like, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. When we hear the words, I'm kind of homesick for a country, which I've never seen before. The lyric resonates in our hearts. So the next couple of weeks, as we focus here on this section of Scripture, Revelation 21.9 through 22.5, I want to tell you about that heavenly home, this heavenly city which the Apostle John sees. It is Beulah land. It is a, a married home. Look at verse 9. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. One of the seven angels, one of the very angels who carried the bowls of God's wrath, John says, poured them out on the earth. You can almost feel the, the angel's excitement and joy, not at wrath, but at God's act of love. He says, come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And what John sees is not an individual or even something we define as a collection of people. It's a city. Now, no doubt this city is represented by its residents, but John's actual vision is not of a people. It is a vision of a place. So again, just a, a word about the bride as we've talked about this before. It does not seem that identifying who this bride is in Revelation is as simple as it has always been made out to be to me. Several times in the Old Testament there were promises through the prophets that Yahweh's relationship to Israel was put in the terms of a marriage, just like I read in Isaiah. But, and it, you'll also find it in Jeremiah and Hosea and, and other prophets as well. There is the explicit promise that Yahweh would permanently restore that relationship with the nation of Israel. And then throughout the New Testament, the writers like Paul defined the church as the bride with a promise that the groom, the, the Lord Jesus, would come and take us to be with him. John's vision here seems to embrace both of those realities as he describes the bride as a place and then he he starts describing this place we'll find in there's 12 gates in verses 12 and 13 they're labeled with the names of Israel's 12 tribes right it echoes the old testament promise but also we find the names of the apostles the the very men who are the foundation of the Lord's church that's identifying the 12 foundations of the city in verse 14 it echoes the New Testament promise. And we also see down in verses 24 through 26 that there appears to be some who are saved but are apparently neither part of Israel or the Lord's church because they are welcome in the city at all times but they do not seem to be permanent residents of the city. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the conclusion we have to reach is that God is going to keep his Old Testament promises to the nation and his New Testament promises to his church and even bless those who are neither Israelites nor part of faithful members of a church. But beyond that, I'm just not prepared to say I've got this puzzle all solved. More than likely than not, it's not here as a puzzle for us to solve. What we can confidently say is that anybody who has access to this holy city only has it through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And by the work of Jesus, they have that blessing of access to Him. Beyond that, look, none of us are, are called to assume the, the role of you know, chief deputy of the New Jerusalem Citizenship and Immigration Services, acting like a registrar of those who are uh, you know, approved citizens of the holy city and maybe issuing temporary visas to non-residents. Right? That's, that's just not our job. Instead, let's focus for a few minutes on John's vision of the New Jerusalem. He takes essentially a, a tour of this glorious city that no travel agent brochure could ever hope to duplicate. And what we'll see in verses 10 through 21 is the city's construction. Verses 22 through chapter 22, verse 2, the city's characteristics. And then in verse 3 through 5 in chapter 22, the city's king. Although, as I said, we won't finish this morning. We'll get about halfway through point two. (laughs) The city's construction. When the angel promises to show John the bride, the lamb's wife, he first gets a vision of this city from a, a long distance away. In verse 10, he describes being carried away to a great and high mountain and seeing that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Not only is the descending from God, it also contains the glory of God. Verse 11, having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and the names written thereon which were the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. When you think of this city as possessing God's glory. I think the purpose of John is to say that it is shining with God's glory. The same kind of glory that made Moses' face shine so much that the Hebrews couldn't stand to look at him. The same glory that was revealed at the transfiguration when the divine nature of Jesus started to glow and shine through his human flesh. It is that shining glory of God that is the first and major characteristic of this city. Immediately in verse 11, John describes that glory by saying, her light, that is the city's light, was like the most precious stone, even like jasper. Now, the jasper stone probably carried a bit of a greenish hue in John's day, but it's unlikely that's what John means, since he said it is like jasper, but... He goes on to say, clear as crystal. Instead, his focus is on sort of the the luminescence of God's glory. The word he uses there for light, when he talks about the city's light, is the Greek word phoster, which literally means brilliance or splendor or radiance. 
John MacArthur is actually kind of amusing when he says, quote, to John, the heavenly city appeared like a giant light bulb with the brilliant light of God's glory streaming out of it, like a huge flawless diamond refracting the brilliant blazing glory of God throughout the new heaven and new earth. So not only is this a sparkling, a shining city, It's also the very picture of security. In verse 12, the the walls of the city are great and high. We'll talk about those walls in more detail in a minute, but for now, understand John's describing physical characteristics of the city. This is not some spiritual place. It is a physical place, a real city with real walls that are really high and really thick. The security is also established by gates, specific entrances to the city. John says there are three gates on each of the city's four sides, and each appears to be essentially guarded by an angel, with, again, the gates associated with the tribes of Israel and the walls built on the foundations that are named after the 12 apostles. At this point, John's vision continues, and he's no longer looking at the city's construction from a distance, he's going to get up close and personal since a tape measure hasn't been invented yet at this point. The angel produces the first century equivalent, a reed, a golden rod, and John watches intently as the angel measures the city for John. Look at verse 15. He that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. He measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. I got the pleasure this week of visiting downtown Chicago and you know you're getting close to the city center when you start seeing all of these like skyscrapers out there on the horizon but this new Jerusalem is nothing like the the big cities that we make it's it's fitting since there's a new heaven and a new earth there's also a a a new kind of city and the angel measures this city and proves that this city is a single massive cube according to the measurements in verse 16 john says the city lies four square that it is it is laid out as a square the length being equal to the width so to be exact the angel uses the reed and measures a single side of the city to be 12,000 furlongs, and if you don't use furlongs today, that's okay. Neither did John. He actually uses the word stadia there, 12,000 stadia. And when you just do the uh, calculations, essentially, it is almost 1,400 miles on one side. So this city is about 1,960,000 square miles just in its footprint. To try and and fail, to put that into perspective, that's about the same as 34 states of Illinois. Thankfully, I don't even think one state of Illinois is going to be in the holy city. 
But that's the area, about 34 times the size of our entire state, and our state's fairly large. Or to try to imagine it differently, if we are here in Washington, Illinois, and we were standing at one corner of the holy city, the, the two corners that are closest to us, one would be in the Bahamas and the other would be in Tucson, Arizona. And the opposite corner from us would be at the southern tip of Mexico. Not the tip of Texas. That's the northern side of Mexico. We're talking about the southern side of Mexico. And if 1,400 miles for one side of the city seems big, then understand that is just the footprint of the city. It's as equally tall, John says, as it is deep and and wide. He says in the end of verse 16, the length and the width and the height of it are all equal. And there is the assumption here that that is all usable space, although exactly how that works is something we're going to have to wait to find out. It makes sense that this city needs to be a gigantic metropolis just based on how many redeemed people throughout the ages the Lord has reserved space for. Meanwhile, the walls which comprise the city are, in verse 12, great and high. That is, they are both tall and thick. And so the angel measures the thickness of the wall in verse 17 and comes up with 144 cubits, or just over 70 yards thick. That is assuming that the angel is using human measurements, which I'm glad John tells us he does, because a cubit is roughly... 18 inches. The way they measured a cubit is to say, well, it's, it's roughly the distance from a man's elbow to the tip of his finger. But if the angel is using his elbow and the tip of his finger, I don't even know how big this angel is. So John specifies for us, it's 144 cubits, verse 17, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And what he's saying there is that the angel measured it but gave the measurement in human terms, 144 human cubits, but 72 yards thick for the wall. As John rounds out a description of the city's construction, he moves beyond what we would think of in terms of blueprints and starts describing the the building material in verse 18. The building of the wall of it was jasper. The city was pure gold like unto clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. And in fact, the end of verse 19 through verse 20, John gives a list of all 12 kinds of precious stones that it was constructed with. And in verse 21, he says the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Every several gate was one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. When John first started describing this glowing city in verse 11, he said it's essentially shimmering, shining with uh, a stone like jasper that's of the most valuable um, prize. And, And now we see there's a reason. It's because it's actually made out of jasper, this crystallized diamond-like rock Jasper can be found in any number of colors like yellow, red, green, but John says in verse 11, it is clear as crystal and that clarity, the the transparent quality of the city 
is stressed several times by John. The, the jasper walls are, are clear. And in verse 18, the inner city, pure gold like clear glass, John says. We're going to see in a moment that the translucence of the city is likely a result of and for the purpose of revealing glory, the glory of God shining through. Now just to recap this for a moment, we've got a city that is a gigantic cube, 1,400 miles per side. There are 12 gates, 12 entrances to the city, three on each side, and St. John seems to suggest that above each gate is the name of one of the 12 tribes, and below each gate is the name of one of the 12 apostles. In verses 19 through 21, he explains that each gate is decorated a little bit differently. Each is garnished, is the word there. It just means decorated with a different kind of precious gemstone. But the gates themselves are pearls. Look at verse 21. Every several gate, that is every individual gate was a single pearl. And someone once told me that they could not accept this description because of the pearly gates. Pearls, yeah, you know how you get pearls? Pearls are created inside of an oyster, right? A piece of grit or sand gets down into an oyster and it irritates it and pains it until it develops a, a pearl around that irritation. So that when each, within each beautiful pearl there is at the root a cause of irritation and pain, right? That's true in this world, but we're looking at a new heaven and a new earth here. Right? God does not require some kind of interstellar-sized oyster to create the pearls for these gates. He's perfectly capable of creating them himself. He is the creator. Although, within each of those beautiful pearly gates, we do find a redeemed people who was the cause of extreme pain for the Savior who puts us there. One more thing to note about the city's construction. It has, it has streets of gold, right? That's not exactly what John says. Look at verse 21 again. The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, singular. He uses the singular again in chapter 22, verse 2. Right, John, this does not discount the possibility that there are more than one street and that maybe all of them are, in fact, made of gold, but John's focus is on a single street, like Main Street, New Jerusalem, and the most valuable material on earth is nothing more than paving cement in the holy city. It's highly likely that this single street that John sees leads to the central focus of the city, the throne of God. Now, having described the city's construction, John goes on to detail the city's characteristics. John's vision is of a city called the New Jerusalem. In John's mind, it's understandable that he would look at this city initially the way he would have looked at the old city. Right By the time John was writing this, he was an old man. Right? The old Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. But the age apostle 
remembers the days of his youth. And, and many times with the Lord Jesus, he would have walked over the crest of the Mount of Olives and seen the, the Mount Zion next to it, just slightly below. And as he looked to the city of old Jerusalem, the, the single most distinguishing factor of old Jerusalem was this immense temple that sat at the peak of Mount Zion. So as John is in verse 10, carried to a high mountain and he's shown another city and says, I'm going to show you the new Jerusalem. You'll forgive him if he finds himself looking for the exact same thing, except that he doesn't find it. Verse 22, I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the lamb are the temple of it. So is there a temple in the new Jerusalem or not? Well, yes and no. I want you to think about for a moment what this word temple means. The, the temple that was built by King Solomon in the Old Testament and, and the tabernacle built by Moses before that were places where God manifested his presence symbolically, right? So that if you wanted to come to God, if you wanted to worship God, you had to come to the temple. Did God literally live inside the temple? No, he did not. Later on, at the coming of the Lord Jesus, Jesus referred to himself as the temple. Right? You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. Why could Jesus be called the temple? Because if you want to come to God and worship in his presence, Jesus is where you have to come to. So now John says, he looks at this holy city, the new Jerusalem, and he looks for a temple building and there is no temple building in the city, but the reason he can't find it is because what is symbolic has been placed by a, replaced by a greater reality. God does dwell in this city. We have access to him. We worship him eternally. And so John says, there was no temple in it. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And by the way, he's already told us this. Look back in chapter 21 to verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The heavenliness of heaven is not about gold streets or pearly gates. It's about finding ourselves at home in our Father's house, in that place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. We're in unity with him and worshiping him forever. Not only is this a literal place with the presence of God, and he is the perfect replacement for the temple, this glorious presence of God and, and the, the shining glory of his presence is a replacement for the sun. This is in verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring glory, the glory and honor of the nations into it. We saw the last week, the old creation in its entirety will be replaced by a new heaven, a new earth. That includes 
the sun, moon, and stars. They're no longer needed for light and warmth because the, the presence and full manifestation of the shining glory of God is more than enough to light the new creation. Specifically, John says, it's the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the light of the city. Not only of the city proper, but also for those blessed, redeemed people from just outside the city. He describes the nations of them which are saved. So redeemed people, presumably not Israelites and not part of the Lord's church, still blessed outside the city. They don't need the sun either, but the the light from the city, from the Lamb is plenty. They, They walk in it, John says. Not only do they walk in that light, but they are welcome visitors to the city. He says in verse 25, the gates are never shut. The practice of ancient cities was to close the gates at night in order to keep the city safe from attack. Well, listen, nobody's going to attack this city. There are no marauders and no enemies. There's only redeemed. Verse 27 says that nothing unclean or detestable or false comes into this city. Only those in the Lamb's book of life, all those who were not in the Lamb's book of life have already been cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And yet there appear to be those who are in the book of life but are not residents of the city. That is, it seems evident enough that the bride, those in the city, do not consist of every person who's written in the book of life. There are others that God predetermined in his elective will to bring to to faith and life and eternal blessing, saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But they are not all part of the bride. And yet they are all blessed. They all have access to the city. Verse 24, they bring their glory into it. Verse 26, bring into it glory and honor of the nations. Or I may say it this way, any person who will come to this city will only do so by divesting themselves of all glory and honor. Not only will they empty themselves of all glory and honor, they will do so gladly. This eternal city is the place where the Lord God himself receives all glory and honor. His sovereign power is on display. It's his majesty is magnified by all those who'd come to it. Again, we've already seen this in John's vision in the heavenly throne room in Revelation 5, verses 12 and 13. They're singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in earth and on on the earth, I'm sorry, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all them that are in it, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So verses 24 and 26, John is not saying that when men bring their honor and glory into the city, that they're showing up at the pearly gates as grand marshals of their own personal parade down the street of gold. He's saying that any honor and glory that they have is willingly surrendered to honor and glorify the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. This eternal holy city is the final place, the only place where humanity will perfectly comply with the righteous standard of God. It is finally a place where wise men do not glory in their wisdom and strong men do not glory in their might and rich men do not glory in their riches. 
All those who glory will know with certainty we only glory in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Now we're about halfway through John's tour of the eternal city and we'll look forward if the Lord wills it to finish that tour next week. But when you think about heaven, when you sing about that sweet Beulah land, while it has a golden street and pearly gates and luminescent walls, all those things are just the, the window dressings. Inside that city is the throne of God upon which the Lamb sits, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is what we long for. As a child of God, you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus and you are out of place in this world. You're a loyal subject to the King of Kings. You are living as a a foreigner right now in a country that is not where you belong because that country is in rebellion against your King. You are a stranger in a strange land. You are a pilgrim, pilgrim that is traveling toward this city whose foundation and architect and builder is God himself. You have citizenship here and you eagerly await the coming of the Lord Jesus. And through faith in the Lord Jesus, his perfect life and his sin-atoning death and his glorious resurrection, this is what awaits you. And so I ask you, are you longing for this? Are you longing for it because of how pretty it is? Are you longing for it because of how much value you find underneath your feet? Or are you longing for it because this is the presence of the Lord Jesus and you can be united with him forever? So just in practical terms, how can you be attached to this world around you when you know it is destined to dissolve? It is part of the old creation that will pass away and there is this glorious city that awaits and it is made glorious by the shining presence of God himself. He receives you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and makes you righteous and invites you into his presence where you can enjoy him and glorify him forever. 